0: All right, take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. We will be finishing 1 Corinthians 4 this morning, barring some strange unforeseen circumstances. We will finish this chapter this morning, um, which will also then end and bring a completion to Paul's first part of this letter where he talks about divisions in the church. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and I will be reading verses 14 through 21. So, Paul writes I do not write these things to shame you, but as my beloved children, I warn you. For though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I have begotten you through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you, imitate me. For this reason, I have sent Timothy to you, who is my beloved and faithful son in the Lord, who will remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach everywhere in every church. Now, some of you are puffed up or arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you shortly if the Lord wills. And I will know not the words of those who are puffed up, but the power. For the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. What do you want? Shall I come to you with a rod or in love and a spirit of gentleness? So, last week, just a brief recap, hopefully, uh, we looked at verses 6 through 13 uh, as uh, Paul brings this first section of 1 Corinthians to a close. And in that passage from last time, uh, Paul confronts the pride and the arrogance of the Corinthian believers. He gives an illustration of being stewards for the sake of Christ, being servants, um, stewards of the mystery and servants of Christ, and all these images that Paul uses, and he says he applies these illustrations to himself and to Apollos, and and then by extension, other apostles, other pastor, teachers, elders, and so on this illustration of stewards. We are servants. We are servants to God to serve and to administer the mysteries of God, as he says here. So the Gospel, all of the doctrine that is associated with the Gospel as well. In other words, this is a way Paul's saying that he and Apollos and then everyone else who serves in the church, we are on the same page. We are united. We have a united focus we are united in our goals and in our intents and in our practices to steward the mysteries of God to we are on the same page we are presenting a united front and then he exhorts the corinthians to heed the scripture passages do not go beyond what has been written and we looked at those passages paul has cited a number of passages from the old testament throughout this letter thus far and we looked at those all of which seek to combat the boastful and divisive hearts of the Corinthians. You know, where God says He will destroy the wisdom of the wise. Or if you're going to boast and anyone boasts in this, that you know the Lord. And then Paul also, um, you know, he, he criticizes them for having uh, what we call sometimes an over-realized eschatology. In other words, they had sort of you know, we talk about the already and the not yet, and they have taken the not yet and kind of brought it into the already. You know, they thought that they had arrived, that they were kings, that they were, they were all this, as I like to say, there's kind of a Chicago thing, you know, all this in a bag of chips, right? That means you know, you've got everything, plus you get the little bonus bag of chips on the side there, that they had arrived, that they had all that they needed. And Paul says, would that were so? <laughs> because if you were reigning, then that would mean we were all reigning. Because that's what you know, Jesus says, that's what Paul has taught, that those who, you know, the, the believers will reign with Christ at the end of the age. So the idea that they were reigning now says that they were bringing the not yet all way over to the already. So then Paul closes that passage by showing them the nature of apostolic ministry. And far from the. Glamorous life of the teachers that were in the Greco-Roman world in those days. The life of an apostle was nothing to envy, right? Paul says, "Look, we are treated as scum. We are paraded as last in line as a spectacle." Uh, which was, you know, calls to mind how the Romans would take their conquered foes and march them <clears throat> into the city. the 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 conquered foes would be last in that line of procession. So they were last. They, they lived a life of suffering. They lived a life that would be foolish. He says, we are fools for Christ's sake. We are weak. We are, we are dishonored. We hunger and thirst. We are poorly clothed. We are beaten. We're homeless. I mean, that's, I mean, you know, if you were to put that in the brochure, you know, it's like, help wanted, we need an apostle. This is what you can expect. You can expect to be beaten, homeless, dishonored, weak, Uh, and foolish. It's like, "Hmm, sign me up. I think I'd like to... No, no one would sign up for that. It is the cruciform life, the cross-shaped life that seeks glory through suffering. It's a theology of the cross, not a theology of glory. And the the Corinthians were kind of living a theology of glory. So as we come into the passage here this morning, verses 14-21... through Paul now is going to finish this discussion on divisions in the church. And I did a count. This is, I forget, I think, what is this, lesson 13 on the handout? 11 of them have been on divisions in the church. Okay, so we've spent the last 11 lessons covering this topic of divisions in the church. And I'm only doing what Paul's doing in 1 Corinthians. He spends a lot of time on it, so that's why we've spent a lot of time on it. But as we see this, it may seem like a lot. It may seem like some of you are ready to move on now to the next topic. Okay, we get it. Divisions are bad. How many times can you say that differently and still be interesting? It's like, I don't know. I'll just I'm, Like I said, I just go to the next few verses and all right, he's still talking about division, so I guess that's what we're going to be talking about. But here, you know, I think the reason why the Apostle spends so much time on this is because it's an issue of first importance. And I may have mentioned that at the very beginning in our introduction to this letter. It is a very important issue in the church because the church, people in general, right, after the fall, we tend to be cliquish. We tend to be divisive. We tend to group with people we like and kind of disdain or at least avoid people we don't like. And that happens in the church as well as in the world. We become members of a particular tribe, and we don't like the other tribes. And we see it in society with race and class. We see it here in the church too. All, you know, and, and, and as the Corinthians were here, they were divided on ministers, right? They were, you know. And if you have a church large enough to have multiple ministers, I could see that happening. I like Pastor Bob. I don't like Pastor Bill. Pastor Bill's boring. Pastor Bill goes on too long. Pastor Bob is nice and brief and he, he, he gets right to the point. And then other people are like, no, I like Pastor Bill because he goes in depth and he tells us everything we need to know. Pastor Bob just kind of glosses over all these things. So now you've got divisions in the church because of who are pastoring the church. The idea here is that Christianity is meant to obliterate all differences. It is meant to obliterate all divisions. right? Because as Paul says in Galatians 3.28, there's neither male nor female, slave nor free, bond nor, you know, uh, freedman or whatever. There, we are all one in Christ Jesus. That is the, the truth. Yet because of lingering sin, we still cling to these divisions, and it's still very easy. So Paul spends a lot of time talking about how this is bad for the church. It's bad for the witness of the church. Again, I've, I may have mentioned this before as well. Who wants to come into a church where you see the members bickering with one another? I wouldn't want to go to that church because then I, you know, I might, you know, they might look at me as an outsider and I might form a third group. right? If you've already got two groups in the church, if I'm the outsider, I come and say, well, we don't want you in our group. Well, we don't want you in our group either. So now you might have a third group of outsiders. So as Paul brings us to a close, and he's been in many places already throughout these first three and a half, four and a half chapters, he's been rather... Frank with them. <laughs> he's been rather blunt with them. He's used some harsh language at times. So now he's going to finish this section emphasizing his fatherly role over them. As a father with his children, he is going to bring this to a close to show them and us that we are all, as we see here, begotten through the Gospel. Um, All right, so moving along to the first point here, Paul's fatherly admonition. Sometimes passages allow for a nice way to where I can make the points kind of either alliterative or, you know, so I've got Paul's fatherly admonishment, Paul's fatherly, I forget what the second one is, example, and then Paul's fatherly discipline. So it kind of sometimes passages work out that way. So let's look first at Paul's fatherly admonition in verses fourteen and fifteen. Now, again, the last passage we looked at, verses six to thirteen, Paul was very harsh with them. Right? He wrote very scathingly, you know, where he says, "Already you are, you know, you are, you are full. Already you are rich. You have reigned as kings without us. You know, I mean, there, there is." Clear sarcasm there. There's clear sarcasm. Then he goes on, We are fools. Oh, but you are wise. We are weak, but oh, you are strong. Very, you know, there's, you know, you can read it in that way and it sounds sarcastic. I think that's the way it's meant to be taken. But here, as Paul brings the section to a close, he's going to explain the purpose for writing the way he did in verse 14 as he says, Look, I do not write these things to shame you, but as my beloved children, I warn you. Okay, so there is his purpose is that, look i've i 've written in the way that I have not to shame you. you know maybe you 're thinking that way, but that's not my goal that's not my reason. My reason here is to warn you, my reason is not to shame you, and the idea here of shame, the word i 'm not even going to try to pronounce it in the Greek anyway, the word is has the idea of turning, so sometimes you turn to someone in respect, and then sometimes you turn away from someone in shame. And that's the idea. So, you know, I'm not writing these things so that you turn away from me in shame. And the reason is I'm not doing this is because you are my beloved children. You are... I treat you as my children. Right? Now, again, we've all had children, and we or most of us have had children, and we know that sometimes you have to speak harshly to them. Sometimes you have to yell at them. I remember teaching Lauren, my daughter, how to drive. If you wonder why I have so many gray hairs, it's because that was part of the reasoning, is because I trying to teach her how to drive. And it wasn't so much on the streets, it was when we got onto the highway driving. Okay, Now, this is not like driving in the highway out here. You get onto 80... You could go at a nice clip and you can just kind of set it in cruise control and you can go on. This is driving in the highway in the city where it's stop and go and people are going like this all over the place and you've got four lanes going in one direction, right? So she's driving and she had this tendency to sort of lean to the left, (laughs) kind of lane changing without signaling the lane change. And she didn't look, she didn't look in her mirror and she didn't do the thing where you do that. So I'm of course doing that. And then when I see a car coming up behind her, I would yell at her, Lauren, get back in your lane. And she says, stop yelling at me. You're freaking me out. It's like, I'm not doing this to be mean to you. I'm doing this so we do not die in a horrific car accident. (laughs) Besides, if we get hit, you're on the driver's side. You're gonna be the one getting the most, you know, the brunt of that. But she would, yeah, she would freak out. I don't like the way you yell at me. It's like well, don't drift in when you're driving. <laughs> Signal your lane changes so the people behind you know. So they can then cut you off anyway. Because in Chicago, they'll do that anyway. They won't let you in. But. So Paul here is addressing them as beloved children. And here we see Paul's fatherly care and concern for these Corinthian believers whom he sees as his spiritual children. And not just children, but beloved children. Again, remember, Paul spent three years with these people. I think this is the most he's ever spent with any one church, other than Ephesus, which is about a year and a half. He spent three years with these people. He wrote four letters to these people. He has cried with them. He has he's he's you know he's rejoiced with them. He has sweat blood, sweat and tears with them. They are his problem child in a way as well, right? They are his beloved children. And here he has to be a parent. He has to show, it's like, look, I'm doing this because I'm a parent. Because good parenting, I mean, if you're a parent, and if you're a good parent, and you've got your, be- the, your children's best interests at heart, what is the one word you'd probably say more often than any other word? No. Right? Your children want candy. If you gave your children the choice, they would eat candy all day long. Now, you can give them candy occasionally, and you're like, here's some candy. like, yay, thank you. Then you say, can I have candy for dinner? No, you can't have candy for dinner. Ah, you don't love me. It's like, no, I'm saying this because it's not good for you. You will rot your teeth, and you will not have any teeth, and you'll have to gum your food for the rest of your life. You have to say no. They don't like it, but it's for their own good. And one of the three marks of a true church, I don't know if I've, maybe I've gone over this in some other context, But the Reformers have developed this. And you could see it in the Belgic Confession. I forget which article. But they talk about marks of a true church. And there are three of them. And the three marks of the true church are the preaching of the pure gospel, the faithful administration of the sacraments, and the exercise of church discipline. Now, every church, every true church, has these marks to some degree or another. There may be better in... One or two of them, and maybe not as good as the other, and the other. but they have to have all three of them in order to be a true church. And true church discipline is, some, is one of those marks. And it's something that pastors and elders, most that I know personally, do not like doing. And it's the same thing with a parent. You don't like to be the mean parent. You don't want to have to spank them. You don't want to have to say no to them, but sometimes you have to. And church discipline is necessary on occasion. And I'm sure Paul did not want to write the way he is written in this letter, right? I mean, he was, he was having a good old time in Ephesus with Timothy and, you know, finishing off his third missionary journey, and then he gets these letters. He gets this letter from, he gets two of them from Corinth. And I can imagine, okay, I don't, my youngest son won't listen to this anyway, so I can say this. When he was in high school, in school in general, okay, Every now and then I'm at work, I would get a phone call. And it would say, hello, Mr. Goebelman, this is Hawthorne Elementary School. And then when I heard that, during the day, I'd, I'd be, my brain is saying, oh, what did he do now? I didn't even need to hear anything. i just like, what did he do now? Or, hello, uh, good morning, Mr. Goebelman, this is Vernon Hills High School. And I'm already thinking, oh, what did he do now? You know, and so he, Paul's probably sitting there in Ephesus. He gets this letter from Corinth, like, oh. What do they do now? What, what what are they doing, right? And he gets, he reads the report from Chloe that talks about all the problems that are going on in the church. The other one's not so bad. It's just they have questions that they need answered. But he reads it, it's like, oh, they're dividing in the church. They're they're engaging in. They're allowing sexual immorality. They're they're fighting with one another. They're suing one another. I need to write another letter. I need to write a letter stat. I need to get this out there now. So he's like, okay, so he writes this. I don't, I don't want to write this, <laughs> you know. And, and another thing we know is that there's a, a, a third letter between First and Second Corinthians that in Second Corinthians is described as the tearful letter. In other words, he wrote, so after this, something else happened in this, and then Paul wrote a really harsh letter to them, and it brought him to tears, it brought them to tears. So he doesn't want to write this, but he has to. And here his purpose is to warn them, to admonish them. And that word carries with it the notion of instruction as well. Paul's warning is meant not only to point out their bad behavior, but also to instruct them and show them the proper path. And church divisions is not a sign of a healthy church, and Paul has spent three and a half chapters admonishing them of that. And then in verse 15 we see here Paul uh, asserts his spiritual parentage over the church. Where he says, For though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I have begotten you through the gospel. Now, if you have an ESV, what does it say? There are many instructors? Countless guides. Countless guides. Okay. The word, I think in the Greek, is, uh, in English, we translate it as the myriad. And it literally means 10,000. So here are the New King James is being actually literal. And ESV is getting the idea. It's countless. That's the idea. It's, it's, it's a, you've got an infinite number of, of teachers, but you only have one spiritual father. You only have one father. And the word there, teacher or guides or instructor, is the word uh, pedagogues, or we get pedagogue from it. It's used for someone who would sort of be hired to watch and instruct young children in a, in a home. Okay? So it would be sort of like a nanny. You'd hire a nanny to watch your children. They would instruct your children in basic things. They're not, they're not teachers per se. They're just the ones that sort of guide the young children and you know, maybe teach them a little bit how to read and write and speak and things like that. Now, in the end, you may have many guides, many teachers, many nannies, but you only have one father. And here, Paul is the Corinthians' spiritual father. And the reason is because Paul begot them through the Gospel, right? It was Paul's evangelistic labors in Corinth for three years that got the Corinthian church up and running. It was Paul's blood, sweat, and tears that laid the foundation in Corinth that others were building upon. Right, that's what Paul says earlier. I laid the foundation; others are building on it. Apollos is building on it. I planted the seeds; Apollos waters the seeds. Paul appeals to the special relationship here now between father and children to warn the Corinthians about their divisive behavior. So it's like, look at all you know. Look, I love you. You are my children. I need to warn you about this, and I'm going to now put on my father hat. And I'm going to warn you, as a father does his children. So now in verses 16 through 17, we're going to see Paul give, him, give them his fatherly example. So out of this father-child relationship between Paul and the Corinthians, he urges them, then he urges them to imitate him in verse 16. Therefore, I urge you, imitate me. Now, some may read that without the context and say, wow, that sounds pretty arrogant. What do you mean imitate you? What are you, some super Christian? You know, <laughs> do what I do because you think you're perfect? No, no, Paul doesn't think he's perfect. He doesn't think he's perfect. Um, again, like a father does with children. I mean, how do children often learn? They learn, they learn by imitating, right? I mean, that's why you got to watch what you do you got to watch what you say when you have young children in the house, because the minute you say something bad, that's the word they're going to repeat for the next 10 minutes, right? It's not the, all the other words you've taught them. You say the S word that ends in T, and then for the next 15 minutes, the little child's running around saying the S word that ends in T, because they heard you say it, right? You know, I mean, it's the same thing with fathers and sons, right, you know? Dad's putting on his tie. The kid wants to have something to try to wrap around. You've got to make sure he doesn't like choke himself. But you know, he wants to put on a tie. So kids learn by imitating. That's what he's saying here. Look, watch how I live the Christian life. Paul's not saying I'm perfect, but he is acknowledging the fact that he is at least more mature than they are because he has called them immature. He has called them carnal or fleshly in the past. And that word there, for imitate is mimetase. We get mime or mimic. You know, when you think of a mime, right? What does a mime do? You know, he does this, right? You know, <laughs> and if you've got two mimes together, they're like mirroring one another. It's, it's kind of like the idea here. Uh, and the context of Paul's command here is to imitate him uh, is all throughout what we've seen so far. In other words, Paul says we are fools for Christ's sake. So imitate us in that manner. Be foolish according to the world. Be, you know, don't live according to the world's ways, live according to the way of the cross. Live according to the way of the Christian life. This is a call to follow Paul in the cruciform life and the apostles and pastor-teachers that also live that as well. It is a call to imitate Paul as he is the scum of the world or the off-scouring of all things. It is a call to follow Paul to be last rather than First. It is a call for them to follow Paul to be fools for the sake of Christ. It's not an easy path to follow, which is why most don't follow it. Right? Or we don't follow it as well as we should. Uh, there's a lot of pressure to conform to the world's way of thinking and behaving. That's why if you remember back in Romans 12, right after Paul gives all of the instruction to the church there, all the theological instruction about the Gospel. And then he closes that last section of chapter 11 with this great praise. Um, He then says, I beseech you, and then goes on in verse 2, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is good and acceptable and perfect, uh, the perfect will of God. Do not be conformed. Um, One popular paraphrase put it this way. Do not let the world squeeze you into its mold. And that's kind of the idea of conform. It's to squeeze. It's to press. Right. So do not let the world press you into its shape. You need to be transformed, not conformed. And there are all kinds of ways and lures in the world that Satan will use to tempt us Away from grateful obedience to the Lord. And that's why Paul says, Look, imitate me. I'm your guide. Okay? You wouldn't go, you know, hiking through these really, you know, winding mountain trails without a guide, right? You know, that's some of them have, you know, this is the easy path. This is the one that leads to death unless you have a guide that shows you where not to step, where not to go. You need a guide. We all need a guide, right? I mean, it's not just the Corinthians, we all need someone to follow, right? I heard one, you know, one popular way to talk about it is like as a Christian, you should have always someone in front of you and someone behind you, okay? Someone in front of you whom you're following, a a godly, mature Christian, someone who has lived this life at least, if not better, at least longer, someone who's more experienced in it. You follow that person, find those godly examples, follow them, and then in turn, you ought to be Training someone else who's younger than you in the faith, so that you have someone in front of you to follow and someone behind you that's following you. That's how this, this Christian life is sort of propagated. Paul, and this is, I'm off script now, so watch out. In Timothy, uh, I think it's first Timothy. If not, it'll be second Timothy, but um, I think, oh, second Timothy, now that I remember. Uh, Yep, 2 Timothy 2. It's a perfect example of this in 2 Timothy 2, where Paul is telling Timothy, you therefore my son. okay, There's that father-son relationship. And if there was anyone that was probably closest to being an actual son to Paul would be Timothy. You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus and the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses. Commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So there's that example. It's like, look, you have heard these things from me. Now you need to commit them to others. That's how the Christian faith is propagated from one generation to the next. Parents teach their children when they grow up and have children. They teach their children and so on and so forth. It mimics... The Old Testament way, right? In Deuteronomy 6, train your children. Teach your children when they're sitting down, when they're standing up, when they're on the way, when they go to bed, when they wake up, when they eat, when they sleep, whatever. Train your children. So that to that end, where Paul says, imitate me, to that end, Paul sends Timothy to Corinth in verse 17 of chapter 4. For this reason I have sent Timothy to you, who is my beloved and faithful son in the Lord, who will remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach everywhere in every church. So again, we mentioned it already. Timothy is a faithful and dearly loved son of Paul, his closest companion. Right? You meet Timothy in Acts chapter 16 as Paul's on his second missionary journey. He goes through the area of Lystra and Derby, and, and Timothy's there, and he is impressed with Timothy, and Timothy follows him, and Paul really pours into the life of this young man, and he becomes himself a godly young man as well. And, of course, Paul's way of life is just one of imitating God because that's what we'll see in 1 Corinthians 11. Imitate me as I imitate God. Or Christ, depending on your translation. Imitate me, in verse 11, uh, chapter 11, verse 1. Imitate me as I also imitate Christ. So again, Paul's not saying imitate me because I'm someone to be followed. Look, I'm trying to follow Christ. So as I'm following Christ, you imitate me. As I'm trying to imitate Christ, and furthermore, what Paul is commending, uh, what what he is commanding, and what Timothy here has been sent to remind them of, is nothing new or novel for Corinth. Paul says his ways in Christ are what he teaches everywhere in every church. It's like I don't have a special message for you, Corinth, that I that's different from the one I'm teaching in Ephesus. Which is different than the one I'm teaching in Thessalonica. This is a sort of a universal faith here, the universal way of behaving. Now we do believe that Christian faith and practice can be sort of contextualized. I put those words, that word in quotes, for different times and places, right? Certain certain practices we see in the Bible, you don't need to literally translate them into every time and place, but the meaning behind it does need to be translated. So he says, Look, I'm showing you, I'm teaching you what I teach in every church. There's not a different way of living for Rome as there is in Corinth. Similarly, Christian life is the same whether you live in Sutton or whether you live in Seattle or any other place in the world. And now, finally, Paul in verses 18 through 21 shows his fatherly discipline. He turns his attention now on those arrogant, puffed up believers in verses 18 and 19. Now, some are puffed up or arrogant as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you shortly if the Lord wills, and I will know not the word of those who are puffed up, but the power. So, as you would imagine, in a church where there were splits and they were split over whether they liked Paul or Apollos or Peter or whatever, there were going to be some that didn't like Paul. There were some in Corinth that just did not like Paul. Uh, Paul talks about this in his letters, uh, in, in particularly 2 Corinthians. Um, but often they, they, they accuse Paul, these critics accuse Paul of being all talk and no action. Oh, you read his letters. And his letters are so harsh. His letters, you know, He talks real strong in his letters, but when he's in person, oh, he's like a lamb. You know, a, Like a lion in his letters, like a lamb when he's in person. So Paul speaks about some of these arrogant people In 2 Corinthians, if you want to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Now remember, 2 Corinthians is the fourth letter that Paul wrote to this church. Two have been preserved in the Bible, two have not. So this is at the end (laughs) of like a long back and forth between Paul and this church. All right, so in 2 Corinthians 10, I'm going to read the first 11 verses. Now I, Paul, myself, am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence am lowly among you, but being absent and bold toward you. So there he's using, he's playing off of their opinion of him. I'm lowly to you when I'm present, but I'm bold when I'm away from you. But I beg you that when I am present, I may not be bold with that confidence by which I intend to be bold against some who think of us as if we have walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments in every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ, and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Do you look at things according to the outward appearance if anyone is convinced in himself that he is in Christ's that he is Christ's, let him again consider this in himself, that just as he is in, he is Christ's, even so we are Christ's. For even if I should boast somewhat more about our authority which the Lord gave us for edification and not for your destruction, I shall not be ashamed, lest I seem to terrify you by letters. For his and this is a quote. For his letters, they say, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. Let such a person consider this, that what we are in word by letters when we are absent, such we will also be indeed when we are present. So already you see here this impression that they had of him that he was all talk and no action. He was all talk in his letters, no action when present. In fact, they said he was contemptible in appearance. I have no idea what Paul looked like. Some say he was kind of a short guy, but then, you know, when you're talking about Middle Eastern people, that could be all of them. Um, Some say that he had a hunched back. Some say he had a deformed arm, which is why he didn't write his own letters. Uh, Oftentimes you see, I've written by a secretary, and it says, I sign with my, you know, see with what large letters I sign my own name at the end of the letter. Some say he had a problem with his eyes, that you get that in 2 Corinthians 12. he, you know, Many people have speculated what the thorn in the flesh that Paul uh, fought with was. But whatever the case is, there is this opinion about Paul that he was all talk and no action. And such then, when Paul says he's coming to them, they think he's being insincere. Right? You can go back to 1 Corinthians 4. It's like, some of you think I'm not coming to you when I say I am. But I am going to come if the Lord wills. So Paul calls these people puffed up. Uh, it's a word that only occurs seven times, all of them in Paul, and six of them are used in First Corinthians. <laughs> I had to kind of chuckle when I looked at that. It's like he uses this word a lot in reference to the Corinthians, and it basically means to have an exaggerated self-conception, right? So it would be the same thing as saying, you know, that person has a big head, right? You know, inflated, whoop, puffed up, right? You have a big head. So these people were puffed up because they thought Paul wasn't going to show up in person to rebuke them. But Paul counters that he will come soon if the Lord wills. So as a parent, again, going back to your parenting you know, uh, days, have you ever had a child that just kind of pushed your buttons a little too much? Right? You, know, you try to be gentle with them. You try to be patient with them. And, and, and then they, just, they, they cross a line. And then that's when you know so the, so they think when they're pushing that line that you're not going to do anything, right? Okay, well I went this far and he didn't do anything. Okay, I went this far, he didn't do anything. Okay, I went this far. And then all of a sudden it's like, okay, no, that's far enough. You're done. We're going to we're going to have it out here. That's what Paul's saying here. You know, you keep getting in trouble because you don't think mom and dad will punish you and all of a sudden bam, that's when the that's when the rod comes out. It's like, you have done enough. That's what the arrogant, puffed up Corinthians were doing. They had tested Paul's patience and now their spiritual father was going to come and discipline them. And of course, Paul says, if the Lord wills. Um, you know, he, does, he, pre- he doesn't presume on the Lord's providence. And again, we know in 2 Corinthians that was another thing they accused him of. You said you were coming, but you didn't come. He says, yeah, I wanted to come, but circumstances didn't allow it. When we get to 2 Corinthians, Lord willing, we'll look at that. Now Paul's goal in wanting to come to them is to find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. Now here I think Paul is playing on something that he has said earlier in the letter. If you remember in chapters 1 and 2, we saw how Paul defended the foolishness of the cross. How Paul said that the weakness of God is stronger than the might or the strength of men. And if you recall also what we've been saying about Uh, the Greco-Roman culture, how they valued uh, the rhetorical skills of the teachers there, the sophists, the philosophers, those people who were skilled in wordcraft and argument. But here, what Paul is saying, look, it doesn't matter how beautifully you can construct an argument. It doesn't matter how well you can craft a speech. It has no power to save. You can't make Christians through rhetorical skills of sophistry. It is only through the foolish message of the cross that and that is where the true power lies. So when Paul says here, look, I'm going to test their 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 power, I'm going to test not the words of those who are puffed up, but their power. They were all concerned about making sure you had you know you had the great arguing skills. But it's like that doesn't do anything. That ha- that's all talk and no power. Paul's like, the power is in the Gospel. It's in the message of the cross. So Paul con- continues now in verse 20. For the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. The kingdom of God is not talk, 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 talk. Right? I mean, words are used in the Gospel proclamation, but those words are God's words and they contain power. Isaiah 55, right? God's Word goes forth and it accomplishes what it sets out to do. The Kingdom of God is going forth in power as the Gospel message, the foolishness of the Gospel message, spreads forth and bringing new birth in people. The same Word of God that called the world out of nothing is at work bringing dead sinners to life in Christ. And that's power. Not the talk of the sophists, not the talk of the philosophers, not the keen and flashy rhetorical skills of the Greco-Roman teachers. It is the message of the cross that has the true power. And then Paul closes in verse 21. What do you want? Shall I come to you with a rod or in love and a spirit of gentleness? Now I I can't (laughs) I read that and I can't help but think of sort of like, you know, you're taking a long road trip with your kids, right? And you're driving the car and your kids are being pains in the butt in the back seat. And then the dad says, do you want me to pull over this car? <laughs> you know, I will. We'll turn around and we'll go back home. You know, whatever, you know, <laughs> however you want to do it. It's like, do you want, that's Paul's like, look, what do you want, Corinthians? Do you want me to come with the rod? Because I will. Or do you want me to come in love and gentleness? It's, it's, Paul is being a father here. He's being a father to unruly children and he's giving them a choice. Shape up or I'm going to bring the rod. You know, I will come and discipline you. You think I'm all talk and no action? I will show you that I am not all talk and no action. But he offers them also the carrot, right? It's like I can come in love in the spirit of gentleness if you're willing to repent. If you're willing to back down. If you're willing to repent of your divisiveness and if you're willing to unite under the gospel and not cause these ungodly, sinful divisions in the church. Well, that's it. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Fred had to look. He's was like, Yeah, it is 10 it is 18. You've got 12 minutes. But uh, next week, Lord willing, on what is today? 20, so 27th, uh, we'll begin chapter 5 in which now Paul goes on to the next problem going on in Corinth that he has gotten from uh, Chloe's household in uh, chapter 5 where they talk about um, sexual morality in the church. And and the goal is to go through the entire chapter. So we should cover chapter 5 all next week, Lord willing.